Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, 12 Days of Christmas special. Uh, and Dominic, today it's the 2nd of January. Yes. Did anything important happen on the 2nd of January? And if it did, is it perhaps Spanish-themed? It is Spanish-themed, yes. So it's it's a huge event in world history, Tom. It's the reconquest of Granada. So you've been to Granada, I assume? You must I have, be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Alhambra? Several times, yeah. It's magnificent palace for those people who don't know on the rock overlooking the city this great sort of ornament of islamic spain and um so what's called the reconquista uh has been going on for centuries effectively the christian reconquest of of spain now that in itself is is quite a loaded term and one i think that a lot of historians would would be a, a little bit suspicious of now don't you because i mean they would argue that it's not a kind of reconquest um so much as the creation of something that hadn't previously existed I think it is so, a reconquest as well. Though. Do you think it's a reconquest? Reco- it's I'm not it's sure. a reconquest by Christian rulers of lands that have previously been Christian. I, I think that's don't a, I think really that's... have a problem with calling. But it that a... seems to you see what I don't like about that is that mm. that seems to imply that the the Islamic sort of I know, societies yes, that have there been is... there were intruders, newcomers, whereas they've been there for centuries. I mean, to use my the example that I used in yesterday's podcast, mm. they have been there for far longer than the United States has existed. Yeah, of, of course, I, I'm not denying that, but I'm, but but I think that uh, I mean, the, the Reconquista is obviously a Spanish word coined by yeah. the Spanish Christians who themselves, um, and I think it adequately reflects what, how they understood the process. It does, but you don't think it's 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 loaded? You don't think it's very loaded? Well, I think I think I, I think there's a kind of, there's a kind of desire on the part of people to see um, pre Reconquista Spain as some multicultural paradise, yeah. and, and I think that that was really really bred of the the tensions in the first decade of the 21st century. Um, there was a real desire to say, yeah, there was a time where. Muslims and Christians and Jews all got on really well and they all sat around eating oranges and bubbling talking fountains. about Aristotle, yeah. bubbling fountains, all this kind Philosophy. of stuff. Yes. And so the, the word Reconquista seemed, um, well, problematic uh, yeah. in that context. But I think I think that's a fantasy. I, Islamic rule was incredibly brutal. Christian rule was incredibly brutal. The process was about war. Uh, the idea that there, you know, of course, there were, there were, there, there was uh, Jews and Christians and, and, and Muslims did, commune because they all lived cheek by jowl there there mm-hmm. was kind of scholarly uh, communication but in muslim lands christians and jews were decisively subordinate and in christian right. lands jews and muslims were decisively subordinate and i think the attempt to imagine that this was some kind of paradise is wholly bogus well we can um, get into this you know, the, 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 the language <laughs> the language of conquest 
I think is important because it reflects the brute realities of what we're going on. Okay, we can get into this in more detail in a future okay. podcast. It's great to find a subject on which I can pretend to be more progressive. <laughs> so <laughs> that is that is splendid. Um, yeah. Let's get back to the anniversary. So the 2nd of January, 1492, the final war really in, in rolling up the Islamic kingdoms of southern Spain has been launched the previous April, and that's the, the Granada War, the attack on the last emirate, the last Islamic emirate. And it's been launched, obviously, by Ferdinand and Isabella, the most Catholic monarchs, as they are known. So um, Ferdinand of uh, Aragon and Isabella of Castile, who are going to unite to be, you know, create Spain. Uh, Granada is it's isolated. It is friendless. Its allies have been defeated or have basically lost their nerve. Um, so for the, what become the Spanish, it's, it's, it's actually a relatively easy job to kind of surround it and subdue it. The, um, Granadans issue appeals to the Ottomans, to North Africa and so on, but basically everybody ignores them because they know it's a kind of complete lost cause. Um, then there's a very strange kind of, it's almost like a kind of Brexit deal process. So in November 1491, the, um, attackers agree a kind of pre-truce truce with the defenders and they sort of say, well, we'll, we'll pause while we discuss the details of the truce. And then the, the final deal is done in time for the 2nd of, of January. And that's the day that even now in Granada, they celebrate it. They have marches and processions and they have sort of this great fiesta because this is the, this is the death knell of Muslim Spain and the moment that a kind of new Spain, um, is, is born. So the guy who is in charge of Granada, um, he's about in his early thirties, about thirty-two, and his name is his his actual name is Abu Abdullah Muhammad the Twelfth, but he's known to Spanish chroniclers as Boabdil, um, sort of corruption of Abdullah, and Boabdil rides out um, with about eighty of his men on the second of January to the camp on the on the banks of the river Genil, which is sort of um, facing the fort the, the Alhambra, to Ferdinand's Ferdinand of Aragon's camp. And there in this sort of this this great sort of set piece tableau, isn't it? Scene. Absolutely kind Clash of Clash of Civilizations tableau. By so many Spanish painters and so on. He hands over the keys to the city to Fernand, basically in surrenders. And the great thing about this tableau, Tom, is that one of the people who is there and watching Christopher Columbus is Christopher Columbus, is a young yeah. Italian who has been yeah. pestering Fernand and Isabella yeah. to pay for his plans to go into India. And of course, it's Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And later on, we have a letter that Christopher Columbus writes to Ferdinand and Isabella when he's sucking up to them. And he says, I remember seeing the royal banners of your highnesses planted by force of arms on the towers of the Alhambra. So, you know, he's there watching this extraordinary landmark moment, which for a lot of people, I think you could say is the end. You know, it's one of those end. When's the middle, when do the middle ages end? Yeah. I mean, this is one of those moments, the end of Islamic Spain, the moment that the balance, you could argue that the balance between the West and Islam, for want of a better expression, begins to tip. Of course, you've got the high points of the Ottoman Empire to come. But from this point onwards, Spain is unified and created, and Spain is going to, of course, become the great superpower. So there's one more moment, which is the moment. Is it his mum? It is his mum. His mum. The moment very, that everybody very stern. So he, if you've ever been to Granada, it's surrounded by mountains. The Albujarras, I think they're called. Um, we almost went on holiday up in the mountains. Very windy roads. Anyway, so he's winding up into the into the mountains, into into exile because he's going to go to Morocco to Fez and spend the rest of his days in Fez. 
And the story goes, always told by Spanish kind of folklorists, that he stops at this kind of ridge and he looks back over at the Alhambra, the great pink stone walls in the dying sunlight, the sound of the beautiful buildings in the world. Oh, yeah. Tremendous. This vision of Paramount's Grand Alhambra is created to be a paradise. And it is and a paradise. I mean, it is absolutely. among the most beautiful buildings. And he looks back and he, and Boab Dylan, he weeps, he sobs. And his mother, his mum says to him, <laughs> I know. <laughs> now you weep like a woman over what you could not defend as a man. I mean, imagine if, if your mum said that to you, you'd never recover. No. Would you? I mean, that would scar no. you for life. So that's called, the, I mean, his sigh. The it's called The Moor's Last Sigh. So as in Sam, the Salman Rushdie book. Salman Rushdie book. And the pass where he supposedly stops, it's called The Pass of the Moor's Sigh. That's very romantic. Um, it's a very romantic story, but actually what then happens is pretty unromantic. So you get the sort of the forcible conversion of a lot of the, the Moors, the Moorish. Well, because actually the treaty is, is, is pretty generous. It is. So there's no the, forced conversion. No. And even Christians who've converted to Islam don't have to convert back. But the Spanish soon renege on that, they do, and, they, yeah. and they start. Um, there starts to be this this series of kind of forced conversions, so uh, expulsions, come to the, the Moriscos, exactly yeah. confiscation of property, and so on. Um, a whole, lo- I mean, one of the biggest. I mean, it goes on for ages. So one of the biggest waves of um, expulsions comes at the beginning of the 17th century. I mean, you're talking about a massive movement of people, refugee kind of crisis. So tens yeah. of thousands of people and going to North Africa. And it's not just Muslims, is it? Because no. uh, so, there are, so there are three uh, kind of seismic events that happen in this year. So the, the fall of Granada, uh, the co- Columbus's the, voyage across the Atlantic, and the expulsion yeah. of the Jews. Exactly. So, that, and, so actually the fall of Granada creates this momentum for a unified Christian Spain in which the Muslims and the Jews do not belong. And so you get the expulsion of the Jews who, of course, you know, tens of thousands of people who end up going to Italy, to Greece, to North Africa. And that's the origin of the kind of Sephardic Jewish yeah. branch. And, the yeah, and, and it's Jewish a massive diaspora. Exodus. Yeah. Colossal. I mean, a huge. Into places huge, like, huge. you know, I don't know, Smyrna, Thessaloniki yeah. and so on. Um, Alexandria. And the Ottomans, of course, they, you know, can't believe that, the Spaniards are being so stupid. Exactly. Expelling exactly. all these, you know, incredibly <laughs> able and wealthy people. Um, but it's, it's, um, I mean, to us, it seems, I, I mean, it's kind of the ultimate crime, isn't it? It, it, it seems a crime against a multicultural, harmonious future, but it exists in the context of, um, apocalyptic yearning, I think. Um, I think Ferdinand seriously sees himself as a, a, a figure who may be destined to, to to bring in the you know the second coming, he's very very focused on the recapture of Jerusalem, uh, yeah. and Columbus likewise is very very motivated by this kind of idea that you know the end of the world is drawing near, um, and people's motives I- I exist in a context that to us seems very very hard to get a grasp on. I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I read a book a year ago by a guy called Fernando Cervantes. Um, I don't think he's related to these Cervantes. <laughs> these Cervantes. Uh, he's a Mexican historian, and it's a book called Conquistadores. Um, and it's a book about oh, yes, that's wonderful. What, yes. what happens in the same year. So basically yeah. the arrival of the Spanish in the New World. And a lot of the, you know, obviously a lot of the people who arrive in the New World have been in these campaigns. So they have yeah. been fighting against the Moors, and they are absolutely, one of the things that Cervantes really brings out in this book is he says, you know, we, we traditionally see the Spanish arrival in the New World 
as motivated purely by plunder and greed and cynicism and all of these kinds of things. And the Christianity is merely a fig leaf for all that. And this obviously would appeal to you, Tom. He says, no, that's not right. They absolutely, absolutely the Christianity absolutely. is not a fig leaf at all. They, yeah. it, it motivates everything. And you cannot understand them if you think of them as just as butchers and plunderers and absolutely. robber barons. Absolutely. They see themselves as app. So when they talk about, you know, for example, when they talk about converting the Muslims in southern Spain or where they talk about converting the Indians in Mexico and in Central America, this isn't just sort of cruel repression. They genuinely believe that they're saving these guys' souls. Absolutely. Just, just as in, in the Islamic period, the, the Muslim conquerors impose on Christians and Jews uh, templates of subordination that have been established in the Quran. These... The cycles of conquest and dominance and exploitation on both the Muslim and the Christian side are absolutely fueled, of course, by, a, you know, I mean, everybody wants to be on Rich, the top, yeah. but, it, but, but it is also massively fueled by very, very culturally determined ways of understanding what that dom- how that dominance should be expressed. And I think that, that with the, the conquistadores, um, you know, we did that wonderful episode with Camilla Townsend. Um, talking about the the Aztecs and Mexica, how they see, how they saw the world, and how the effort to understand how they understood it things transforms your understanding of the process of the conquest. But I think exactly the same is is true of the the conquistadores, and that's why I thought that book was so wonderful as well. I thought it's yeah. a kind of wonderful companion piece to Camilla Townsend's Fifth Son. It is actually. Well, it, what it does, I think, Tom, is that there's a there's a kind of slightly bad habit, I think, an um, an automatic kind of scholarly habit in the last 50 years or so to say people believed this, but this was actually merely a, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, this was the, the sort of um, a, a, a pretext or what they really cared about. And generally it's a kind of, or what they really cared about was money. Was making, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's true with almost everything. So people, you know, with culture wars, people, well, I think, say, I mean, I think they're I mean, not really cult- People don't really care about culture. Wars. I mean, they're that is a kind of lingering economics. aftershock of Marxism, isn't it? It, it is exactly. That, that, Absolutely. that everything is to be determined, you know, explained ultimately in material terms. But I think it's also, um, a, it's, it's a kind of a, a laying claim to a kind of sophistication that, yeah. you know, I've studied history so long that I've now penetrated to, uh, the, the dark motives that, fuel Absolutely. how people have behaved um there's a, i mean there's a very petty but, example of this in the last few years in, in britain which is when people talk about brexit and they say well people who voted for brexit didn't really do it because they didn't want to leave the eu they really did it because of racism anti-austerity blah 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 blah, blah. and and you know this sort of i've penetrated to the deeper motives that these people themselves don't even realize they yeah had. well also there's the, you know nobody voted um for brexit to make themselves poorer well i think actually Quite a lot of people did because, well, anyway, you know, there are things that are more important than that. Who knew the so, conversation um, about the conquest yeah. of the Alhambra could lead us to just a rambling conversation about? Well, but, it's, but, but, but you know, you will know that that it, this has been the great theme. That's the great theme of Dominion is that actually it's not yeah. just about material self-interest. No, no, no. You're you absolutely know. right. I agree with you. <laughs> that this stuff really, really matters. It's now, really if, you're, if, if, you, if you think you may have heard some of this from us before, you will be relieved because in the <laughs> second half, we are talking about somebody we've never mentioned on the podcast and a part of the world I think we've never mentioned. We will be delving into the murky world of the Hawaiian monarchy. See you after the break. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy, and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. I promised you the Hawaiian monarchy, and that's what you're going to get. Tom, this is not a subject I was expecting us to ever talk about on this podcast. <laughs> no. Enlighten me. No. Well, I'm you know, I'm going to put my hands up and say that this is not a subject that I really know anything about at all. Well, that's a good start. Have you researched <laughs> so, it closely? So, yes. Well, but, but I, it's a subject that I became interested in because of a, uh, a drama series that I watched last year called White Lotus. Did you see it? Brilliant series. Absolutely. I, I thought. Brilliant. I, I mean, I thought it was, it, it was the best satire yeah. on the way the West is at the moment that I've seen 
for a long time. It was so, it was what was nice about but you're you're I, I think you're almost underselling it because you can that makes it sound quite political. And actually one of the great things about it was that the politics was constantly being kind of undercut. In a well, that's why it's the great satire. Yeah. I mean, but it was also great st- character studies. So essentially Brilliant. the plot is it's set in a hotel, a luxury hotel, appalling rich visitors arrive. Um, there's the staff who are exploited. Uh, and, and of course the dynamic is that um, the, 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 the rich, outs- the white outsiders are, are exploitative, but it becomes more complicated than that. Yeah. Um and, and and it's a it's a brilliant brilliant series and lurking a, a kind of thread running through it is the way in which uh native Hawaiian culture has been commodified has been dissipated um That's right. essentially yeah. kind of exists uh to make money from it's rich tourists. It's a tourist attraction basically. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of watched it and uh, there's kind of an incredibly moving sequence where there's there are Hawaiian native Hawaiians who are uh, in a, a long boat and they're practicing and one of the most miserable uh, American characters in the series ends up becoming transfixed by this. And it's almost kind of redemptive in its quality. It's one of the few kind of, you know, it's it's a visual kind of statement of hope almost of the sublime. Um, and I watched it and realized I knew nothing at all about Hawaii, apart from the fact that Captain Cook died there. And that was basically the limit of my knowledge. Yeah. Um, so so I, I kind of just basically skim read um, a book on history on on Hawaii, and um, I suppose because I'm British, I, I I did find the 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 British thread in Hawaiian history interesting because of course the flag of Hawaii has the Union Jack on it. I think it's the only oh yeah, of course it's, it does. It's, it's the yes. only state flag in the United States that has a Union Jack, um, and that reflects the you know Cook who who um, was uh, the first European to to discover them, although. Maybe the Spanish got there first, not for sure. Uh, Polynesian adventurers had got there in 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Um, Cook arrives. Um, <laughs> predictably, it all turns horrible. Um, the introduction of European arms, um, the introduction of European diseases has yeah. its customary devastating effects. Uh, all the chiefs of the various islands start fighting one another. Uh, there's a great kind of series of battles and and, and clashes. Um, and in 1795, all the various um, islands of the Hawaiian archipelago get united under a, a, a king. And I'm going to apologies to any Hawaiian listeners if there are any out there. I, I know I'm going to mispronounce this, but he he he's called Kamehameha, and he's okay. commemorated as Kamehameha the Great. And he establishes a line of kings, all of whom take the name Kamehameha. So Kamehameha, the first, yeah. the second, the third, the fourth. Um, and what happens over the 19th century is that Hawaii becomes increasingly part, kind of Anglo-Americanized. So there's both British and American influences. Yeah. And the intersection point of that is Protestant missionaries. So Hawaii becomes Protestantized very, very quickly. Um, uh, in 1840, it becomes officially a, a Christian uh, monarchy. Um, and uh, Protestant missionaries kind of end up becoming key players in the in the politics of this Hawaiian kingdom. So they kind of marry into the local aristocracy. They have children. They become advisors and so on. And this integrates the Hawaiian monarchy into the kind of the broader world of European and American 
geopolitics. Yeah. So you have this king called um, Kamahamaha the Fourth. <laughs> I knew he'd be Kamahamaha. <laughs> so um, he's he's a very 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 travelled man. Uh, when he's very young, um, before he becomes king, he's the crown prince. He he travels to France. He meets Louis Napoleon. Uh, mm. He goes to uh, England and he meets. Uh, he doesn't meet Queen Victoria because she's, um, I think, pregnant at the time and is retired. But meets Prince Albert, meets uh, Lord Palmerston, and then goes to America, meets the the um, uh, President Taylor. Yeah, and then he's going back on the train across America, and he goes into his uh, private compartment because, of course, he's a king, so he has a wonderful compartment. And the conductor, seeing that he's not white assumes that he's a, a servant who's strayed in there and shouldn't be there and upbraids him and tries to throw him off the train. And uh, Kamahamaha is obviously furious at this. Uh, and this is, I think, a, a sentiment uh, calculated to make every Englishman proud. This is the first time I have ever received such treatment, not in England or France or anywhere else. In England, an African can pay his fare and sit alongside Queen Victoria. Oh, that's very heartwarming. And you know the other heartwarming thing about um, Kamahamaha? Uh, he's a Wolves big, fan? No, he's a big cricket fan. <laughs> he's a huge cricket fan. So there's a kind of fascinating glimpse there of, of what Hawaii might have been. A cricketing... A, a, a cricket playing part of the United Kingdom. Kingdom. Like right, Guernsey. <laughs> like Guernsey, exactly. Anyway, so what, so what does this have to do with the 2nd of January? Well, it has to do with the birth of... The 2nd of January is the birth of um, King Kamahamaha IV's wife. Queen Emma. His wife is born yeah. on the... Yeah. Okay. So she's born on January the 2nd, 1836. Yeah. Um, and her lineage is incredibly complicated, involving incredibly Hawaiian names that oh, I yeah. do Talk not really it. feel. <laughs> Talk us through it. <laughs> so her full name is Emma Kalanikaumaka Amano Kalaleleonalani Nea Rook. Oh, your Hawaiian is beautiful. <laughs> And um, uh, the rook is um, her stepfather, right? So she's 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 born to very distinguished Hawaiian aristocracy. There's then apparently it's the custom of the Hawaiian aristocracy that the children get adopted by uh, step parents, and okay. she gets adopted by um, a, uh, uh, a an aunt of hers who doesn't have a child, who's a ch- who's a chieftain. Uh, in Hawaii, and is married to somebody, uh, a missionary called Dr. Thomas C.B. Rook. And Dr. Thomas C.B. Rook is English. Uh, he came from Hertfordshire. Right. He studied at St. Bartholomew's Hospital and ma- ends up marrying into the Hawaiian royal family. <laughs> and he builds what every visitor uh, to Hawaii says is the most English house outside England. Wow. It's it's the most English looking house. I'm going to Google his house right now. What's his and, name? And Thomas Rook. Thomas Rook with an E. And so so Emma grows up in this incredibly English house, uh, and she marries. Um, uh, she marries. It's the King quite of Hawaii. English. It's only quite English. Well, that's his reputation. Yeah. Don't spoil it for people. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. It's very English. It's, it's a, a very, very English, English house. It looks like a house from uh, Snow on the Wold. Exactly, but I'll say that uh, please, <laughs> you know. And there are cricket nets for yeah for the king cricket to practice his off breaks, and it's, yeah. you know it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so um, she married. She, so she marries the king of Hawaii. Yep, and they have um, they have a son who they call Albert. Oh, very good. He was born in eighteen fifty eight. And do you know who Albert's godmother is? 
Queen Victoria. Yeah, Queen Victoria. Yep. She agreed to do it. Yeah, she did. Oh, yeah. good for Queen Victoria. That that yeah. that railroad conductor yeah. in the US wouldn't have agreed, but Queen Victoria yeah. agreed. And um, so, her, unfortunately, the son Albert um, dies in eighteen sixty-two, and her husband dies the following year. Yeah. So she, you know, she doesn't have a kind of official state. She kind of remains a queen, but she's no longer regnant. Yeah. Um, so she devotes her life to philanthropy. So she founds a hospital to help Hawaiians fight smallpox. Uh, she sponsors education. She's a great enthusiast for opera. So she sings in the chorus of a performance of La Traviata. Golly, that's very impressive. She's also a very devout Anglican. Yep. So she uh, she gets the Church of England to set up the Church of Hawaii as a kind of branch of the Church of England. Uh, 1862, she gets baptised into the Anglican Church. And then 1865 to um, six. She follows in her dead husband's footsteps by going on a grand tour of America and Europe. Uh, and she gets to meet Victoria. Oh, this is a nice moment. Yeah. And they, they get on tremendously well. Uh, Victoria is very, very fond of her. She meets Napoleon III. She winters yep. on the on the, the French Riviera. Uh, and then she comes back to Hawaii. And in 1874, there's an election for the king because the, there's a kind of problem of, you know, there's not an obvious yep. candidate. Um, and... Emma runs as one of the candidate, one of the two candidates, and her right. So she's the pro-British candidate, and yep. her rival is the pro-American candidate. Oh dear, I don't like the way this is going, Tom. <laughs> okay, so so Emma is the people's choice, of course, people's princess. The people back Emma; they want yep. her to be the queen. But the legislative assembly, who've been bought by the Yankee dollar, back her oh, rival. This is a poor story. So. So uh, th- this this American rival, whose name is Kalakaua, Kalakaua becomes king. What an absolute villain! He becomes king. Well, he's yeah. not actually. He's you know he's not a villain. He's a decent man, um, and he leaves a seat for her at every royal occasion. So it's it's left for her. Uh, it's easy to be magnanimous though when yeah, you bought she, the election. You know, she keeps her title. She's known as the old queen. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, so, she might not like that. I mean, I mean yeah, that I doesn't think, sound to me like he's a tremendous fellow at all. He seems like an absolute shit. No, I think the old queen is a term of great affection and respect. Um, <laughs> and, um, and you know, and then she dies. But right. I think that's a kind of wonderful story. So, if she had uh, won that election, do you think Hawaii would be British, or would be like the Falkland Islands or something? I think it'd be a constitutional monarchy. Yeah, because what happened and, to the- and um, you know the cricket playing descendants of Queen Emma would be loyal members of the British Commonwealth, and it would all be tremendous. You may not know the answer to this time, but what happened to the Hawaiian monarchy? Um, basically, um, British and American business interests, and, and chiefly American business interests, um, decided that the monarchy was getting in the way of uh, what it wanted to do, of kind of um, integrating it into uh, the American economy, and so they they toppled it. Oh, that's very disappointing. So basically, it toppled yeah. in the interest of capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Swept away by by. Well, I mean, back at, you know, classic Marxist. Yeah, strategy. Sad. Very uh, feudal- sad. Feudalism toppled. Um, hard nosed capitalists move in. Okay, well, that cues up very nicely tomorrow's choices. Because tomorrow, I should be talking about a man who had a lot of time for monarchy and very little time for hard nosed commercialism, and that man, Tom, is J.R.R. Tolkien. Brilliant. Very exciting. So we shall see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.